All right, so we're in the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 8. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And a study I'm calling uh, Message Impossible, number one, as we're going to see there's two message impossibles um, given to us. We're going to break these apart. But first, we're going to look at the first one tonight in verses 4 through 8. And so when you're there, let's pray and let's... Uh, See what God has for us as we get in his word. Father, thank you so much for the chance to study your word. Lord, we know that you have a message for us, Lord. Lord, we know that you had a message for the original audience, and we pray, Lord, for the work of your spirit, Lord, you would help us to understand that message and then take those things, Lord, and apply it to our life, that we would be warned, Lord, but also we'd be encouraged to press forward, Lord, to maturity, Lord, in those good things that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever used a word or words and not really thought about its implications and, and really what it means? Three common words that we often do this without thinking about what they really mean are the words never, always, and impossible. I mean, that's like pre-marriage counseling 101, right? As you sit down, they say, okay, two words that you need to forget from your memory as you relate to each other is never and always. You always do this. You never do that. Well, think about it. It's, it, it's really, an, you know, it, it's really not true because, you know, you don't always do something or you never do something. And so it's really an exaggeration. The word impossible can be used that way also. Well, that's impossible. Well, are you saying it's really difficult or are you really saying that's actually impossible? Now, the writer in chapter 6 of Hebrews is going to use the word impossible twice. First in verse 4, and again in verse 18. Each time the writer uses the word impossible, he shows us that he means impossible. He understands the implications behind it, and he's going to tell us why he uses that word. It's a very important word. It's selective. Tonight I want to focus on this first message impossible in verses 6 through 8. Now last week we left off with the results of the Hebrew spiritual hearing test. The writer came back and said, hey guys, you guys are dull of hearing. They had become this way, we're told in verse 11 of chapter 5. And so rather than having the excitement, you know, the excitement that they once had when they became believers in the Lord, to know the Lord and to grow in his word and to obey his word, they had stopped. And really rather than growing in maturity, they were in a state of immaturity. They were unwilling to press forward in their Christian faith. Rather, they were looking back to the things of Judaism. As we've talked about before, they were under persecution, and they thought, hey, you know what? We can solve this right now by just going back to, to Judaism. And if we do that, it'll stop the persecution from our Jewish um, relatives, our Jewish, um, you know, the Jewish community. But the writer tells them, no, the way not to look is, is, is not back, but the way to look is forward. There's one way as we press forward to Jesus. Now, the reader's doldness left them, as I said, in a state of maturity. And the writer now is going to tell them the warning for staying in that state. It was really a big deal to remain there because if they would continue to digress, it could become a dangerous situation for them. They were to press forward and be mature by obeying the things that he told them to do. I love these New Testament books because when the writers wrote these things, they knew that they were writing the word of God. This was God's word to them. They were to obey these things, and by doing that, they would grow. And the same is true for you and I. 
maybe we're in a different situation tonight. Obviously, we are. We're not thinking about going back to Judaism, right, most of us. But yet, nevertheless, we have a choice before us each day. Will I press forward in my walk with the Lord? Will I, you know, go on to maturity? And the Lord encourages us over and over in his word to, to do so because it's important that we do. And that's what we see. So now we come to these consequences in verses 4 to 6. The writer says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now let's just stop real fast and, and break these things down because I believe as we break this down, the writer and the Lord will give us the meaning of this text. Most of you know that this passage right here is a controversial passage. Controversial in the sense that Bible scholars throughout the years have come to it and thought, hmm, what does that mean? You know, and, and, and through the Holy Spirit and prayer, people have come up with different ideas, with, with different interpretations, and, and the Lord has given us the same tonight. And I, I believe it, it'll see clearly, rather than talking about a doctrine or, or a theology, we just go into the text itself and break it apart and um, compare Scripture with Scripture and, and what the writer is saying here. First, we see that this warning is connected with Hebrews chapter 5, verses um, 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. We know that because he begins here with the word for. He said for. And so that links us back to what was just previously said. And so the writer is desiring them to go on past the elementary things that he spoke about in the beginning of chapter 6. He says, hey guys, don't look back to the elementary principles, to those things, but you need to press forward. You need to carry on, go forward. The elementary principles were those things of Judaism that pointed to Jesus, the things that they were saved from. Yes, they pointed towards Jesus and they were fulfilled by him, but now they weren't to look back and go back to them, but they were to, to press on. So we need to keep this in the context of, of what the writer said, but also we need to keep this in the context of the book because the writer has a specific message that he's trying to communicate to them. Now the warning now we see is put together by verse 4 and also verse 6. And so if we were to put together verse 4 and verse 6, we could say this. He's saying is, it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. That's what he's saying. It's, it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Along with this warning is an explanation of who he's talking to. Who are the they in these verses? And we see who the they are because it's sandwiched in between verses 4 and 6. And then at the end of verse 6, he gives us the reason why this warning is so serious. He says, hey guys, I, I gave you who I'm talking to. I gave you why this, this warning is serious. And now, here it is. He breaks it down for us. So let's first talk about those who he's referring to here. The writer now lists five experiences that can only be characteristic of a believer in Jesus Christ. As you see, as you work through these five characteristics, they're all in the past tense. I'm told by scholars who know Greek, these words are given in the aorist tense, which means they're all a past completed action. They're not something that the writer is saying, hey, you guys need to do these things. But he's saying, hey, these were all things that were experience, that experiences that you had. And I believe it, they, they all had them from putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They're all a result 
of being a believer. First, he says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. The enlightenment here has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten or to give a person understanding at salvation. Notice a person is once enlightened. The word once here means once and for all. So this can't be re, you know, repeated over and over and over. But rather, when these people put their faith in Jesus Christ, they understood the gospel. And they understood the fact of what God was doing in their life. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Here's what he said. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it's God who shined his light on us. It's the work of the Spirit in salvation. And so and this was the experience that these believers had when they put their faith in the Lord. They, tested the heaven, uh, they tasted the heavenly gift. To taste the heavenly gift does not mean that they nibbled or tried it. Often people say, well, it's kind of like when Jesus was on the cross. They tried to give him the wine mixed with gall, and he tasted it, but he rejected it. No, it's not that word at all. The writer used the same word tasted in Hebrews 2.9, where, uh, where he said, Jesus tasted death for every man. Jesus tasted death for everyone. So Jesus didn't try death. He experienced the full wrath of God for man's sins. In the same way, these believers, they had tasted the heavenly gift. The time that they tasted it was when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They had the knowledge and experience of the blessings of God that only come with salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, God is, is a heavenly gift giver. We know that in James 1.17. We're told that, that all good and perfect gifts come from God who's above. And he has given believers amazing gifts. He's given us Jesus, who is called the indescribable gift. Also, he's given us the Holy Spirit. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost, repent and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And also, salvation as a whole is a gift. It's God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works. And so these believers, by their faith in Jesus Christ, had experienced and really know the, the fullness of God's gift to them in salvation. As a result, they had become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, these folks are partakers now. The word partaker means a participant. So they, through their salvation, had a real participation with the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus promised believers in John chapter 14 and 16. He told his disciples before he left, he said, hey guys, the Spirit who is with you he will be in you. They had that experience there. But also he told them in chapter 16 that the spirit of truth is gonna come and he's gonna lead them in all truth. And he's gonna bring to their remembrance all things and he's gonna come alongside of them as the one who, uh, as the paracletus and, and help them. And these believers had that experience. They tasted the good word of God. These believers had a real experience with God as they got into his word. The Lord was speaking to them. Now, the word for word here is the word rhema, I'm told, and that is a specific spoken word from God. It's when the Lord speaks to you specifically. So they were not natural people discerned, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, hey, the natural person doesn't understand the wisdom of God, but only the spiritual person, only the person who's born again. So these believers were hearing from the Lord through his word, but they stopped. They, they had become dull of hearing. They were not receiving the Lord's word anymore and acting upon it. 
They had, they had tasted the powers of the age to come. The word powers is used in chapter two, verse four of Hebrews to refer to miracles. So they had tasted these things, or in other words, they had experienced them. So whether they, the Lord worked miracles through their life, we're not told, but they definitely experienced them. And God was showing them these miracles, these, these powers that would be characteristic of the age to come, which is the millennial kingdom. And that's pretty cool to think about because the millennial kingdom is exactly that. God really reverses the natural effects on the earth as he causes the lion to lie down with the lamb, right? Children will play by cobra's den. I mean, there'll be, you know, streams in the desert. All these, all these things that God does that are impossible naturally, God reverses those things. And that's what God says here through his word to these believers. He says, hey guys, you guys are already experiencing that right now just through my work of the Spirit in your life. And so what an encouragement for these believers not to look back, but to press forward. And God's always faithful to do this for us as believers. He's always faithful to remind us exactly what he's done for us before he gives us a hard truth. And if you read Jesus' letter to the seven churches there in the book of Revelation, the Lord often does that. He often commends the believers, and then he gives them the, the command and Paul did the same thing in his letters. He would spend some 10 chapters, in, say in Romans, or actually 11 chapters, talking about all that God had done for you and all the blessings he'd given you. But then in chapter 12, he says, okay, guys, now I beseech you that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. And so the Lord always woos us. He always blesses us. And then he encouraged us to press forward. And this is what the Lord was doing to these believers. The writers were, was reminding them of all the good things that the Lord was doing and now he tells them that if they would turn back, it would be impossible for them to renew them again to repentance. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word impossible here doesn't mean, as I said, hard or difficult, but it means just that. It means impossible. It means it is not possible. Now, this does not mean that God does not have the power to restore these believers, but it means that these believers would not be able to be restored again to repentance. They would not be able to restore themselves again to repentance. And repentance really is on the believer. Yes, God does work through his grace and, and woo us, but it's, it's the believer who responds to that in repentance, to turn about face, right, and to turn back. Well, the writer says, hey, guys, you have all these blessings, but if you choose to fall away, then you're not going to be able to be restored back to your original state. Now the phrase fell away or fall away, I'm told is one word in the Greek and Strong says that it means to fall aside and figuratively it means to apostatize or to turn their back on the Christian faith. And that's really the context of the book. We don't have to wonder, I wonder what he's talking about here, fall away, fall aside. We, we know exactly what he's talking about because he said it over and over and over and over and that's the great thing about going verse by verse through the Bible is you don't just hop into the book in the middle and try to form a doctrine of it. You actually have the whole message of the book. And so the writer has encouraged these believers over three times now to hold fast to their confession, to not turn back. Their confession is their faith. To turn back would be to turn back to Judaism, to the former things, to the elementary things. That's what he's telling them here. He said, hey guys, don't listen to the idea of what these people are trying to teach you, that you should go back to Judaism. Don't fall away. Don't go back, but rather press forward. They were, to, they were to go on 
in their faith. Now, why was this such an important choice? Well, we're told here two reasons why this was so important. They would be serious consequences. First of all, the nature of sin itself is here, is given at the end of verse six. They would crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, to crucify the Son of God again for themselves would be seen in their return to the Jewish sacrificial system. And so the temple was still around, which, is, which means it's before 70 AD, and there was a strong pull on these Jewish believers to go back to the temple and begin sacrificing again, right, as God established in the Old Testament under the law. They would say, hey, we can solve this right now. We'll go back and we'll just start sacrificing again. Well, the writer says here, if they were to do that, they would crucify again for themselves the Son of God. What the writer is saying here is that by them doing this would be saying that the Son of God still needs to atone for their sins once and for all because the work that Jesus did was not enough on the cross. You see, because the sacrifices in the Old Testament were only temporary, and we'll learn more about that in chapter 10. The writer kind of continues on with what he's saying and kind of builds and builds and builds as he goes through the book. The, the, uh, you know, the sacrifices were prophetic. They were temporary. They would cover the person's sin, atone for them for a time, but then they pointed the person forward to a future sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that would finally do away with their sin. And the believer, as they offered these sacrifices, knew every year that, you know, they needed a greater sacrifice. And so by them going back to Judaism and thinking, okay, well, now we're going to offer sacrifices again, would be actually crucifying again for themselves the Son of God. So in other words, they're saying, hey, the Son of God, a perfect sacrifice, still needs to come and atone for our sins. He needs to die again because we're showing here through our sacrificing that what he did on the cross wasn't really enough. It's pointing forward to someone else coming. It's pointing forward to Jesus coming again. It would put him to an open shame. Now, to return to Judaism would, would be to put Jesus, the Son of God, to an open shame. You see, the religious leaders, as Jesus was on the cross, they surrounded the cross, as Psalm 22 predicted they would. And what they do? They shamed the Lord. They put him to an open shame. They mocked him. They said, hey, he saved others, but himself he cannot save, right? And they mocked him. They, you know, they said, hey, and, and above the cross, said, king of the Jews. And so, you know, they tried to get him for anarchy and things like that, but they had no accusations. But it was really to mock Jesus. They bowed before him and say, hell, king of the Jews. By these Jewish believers going back to Judaism, they would be siding with that Jewish generation that committed that sin. The unpardonable sin, as Mark tells us, which said that they actually said that Jesus actually did his miracles by Satan. That he wasn't the son of God, he was... He was a fraud, and, and the reason why he did his miracles was by the power of Satan. They totally rejected him, and they shamed him. So now these believers were thinking about going back, but he says, if you go back, you're going to identify with that group which shamed the Lord. Really, if you think about these things, it really makes you want to cry. You know, think about it. It's such a serious thing, but you know what? That's what sin does to you and I as a believer. I mean, it seems like a little thing. It seems like, okay, well, I'm just going to give into it, and, and it's a small thing. But really, when you think about the consequences of it and really what it is, it's really gross and sad. Now, when talk about these consequences, 
the writer here gave an illustration to kind of help us understand a little more on what he's talking about. Verse 7, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near being cursed whose end is to be burned. So the purpose of the Christian life is really that. It's to bear fruit for the Lord. That's why the Lord has us here. He wants us to bear fruit. In John chapter 15, when the Lord was there with his disciples on the last night, he says, hey guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to abide in me and I want you to bear fruit and fruit that remains. We're given more insight into what fruit is throughout the New Testament. Some of those things are the fruit of the Spirit, right, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All those things that come forth from the believer's life. The Lord wants us to grow in personal holiness. He wants us to bear fruit. And these folks would bear fruit if they would abide in Jesus. And the Lord would enable them to do so. He would give them the rain, right, which is the work of the Spirit. And if they were to abide in the Lord and bear fruit, they would be useful to others, and also they would receive blessings from God. And that's what he says here. A, you, know, the earth, you know, the earth which bears herbs is useful to others. In the same way, a believer's life which is bearing fruit is useful. Jesus said that, and once again in John 15, where you're talking about the, the, um, the grapes there. He said, hey, if you bear fruit, you're going to be useful. But what good is a branch that does, you know, that does not abide? It doesn't bear fruit. It's useless. It's cast out. Because a, you know, a grapevine can't really do anything. In the same way, a believer who's not growing in their walk with the Lord, who's bearing fruit, is really useless. And they're not going to receive the blessings from God. On the other hand, if the field or a believer's life bears, it is rejected, and notice this, near being cursed and is burned. In the same way, a person who chose to remain immature, these believers, if they chose to remain immature, and return return to Judaism, they would not be cursed. They would not be cursed by the Lord, but they would not be effective, and as a result, they would be rejected and burned. They would be disciplined. I'm talking about physical discipline here. Not being cursed, but be rejected and disciplined. So this is what I believe Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 is saying. It's not talking about mere professors of the faith. It's not talking about people who were thinking about maybe becoming Christians and, and the writers warning them, hey guys, if, if you don't actually believe in Jesus, you're not gonna go to heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. It's clear that these folks were Christians because they had the characteristics of a believer. Nor is he talking about a Christian who can lose their salvation because these folks aren't gonna be cursed. They're not gonna lose their salvation. And, and here's the thing too with that view. If you teach that, this verse in this passage teaches that a person can lose their salvation, that a Christian, if they fall away, they actually don't, you know, they actually stop becoming a Christian. You have a big problem because writer says here that it's impossible for them to repent again. And so if a person holds that this is talking about a believer who loses their salvation, then they also have to teach that it's impossible for a person who falls away to ever become a Christian again. And so these different churches which have altar calls every Sunday and use this text because they, people lost their salvation the, the week before, they need to, first of all, talk to them and see if they did, and then they would say, okay, sorry, you can't come anymore. You have to leave because you can't become a Christian anymore. And obviously, that's not what the writer's talking about. It's not, you know, it's not talking about a person who loses their salvation and is resaved. 
But these verses are talking to the Hebrews who are faced with a very important choice of whether they were to press forward or go back to Judaism. If they chose to go back, this would actually be a destructive decision. It would render their testimony and witness useless and ineffective. They would not be useful to people around them anymore. It would actually destroy their witness. Their lives wouldn't bear fruitful herbs for others to be blessed with, but it would be totally ineffective. Also, just as the ground was not cursed but burned, these believers would remain saved, but they would experience physical judgment. Physical judgment. Throughout the book, as the writer talks about judgment, he's always talking about physical judgment. And earlier in, in the book, he talked about just retribution to these things. And often we think about rewards, well, maybe they're gonna lose rewards, but at the reward seat, you're not gonna receive just retribution for rejecting the Lord because the Lord doesn't remember your sins anymore as you stand at the bema, but you're judged based on those things that you do with an impure motive. And so a just retribution, as he said previously, is talking about a, a punishment that you receive as you would under the law for disobedience. And this is what the writer's talking about here. These believers would not be cursed, they would not lose their salvation, but they would face physical judgment. We can go back to the previous illustration that he gave, right, in chapters four, three and four, with that generation which was in the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. So there, the Jews were in the wilderness, and they had a very important choice on whether they were to choose to enter into the land and experience God's blessing to become a fruitful nation and a blessed nation, or would they choose to turn their back on the Lord and experience discipline? And what did they do? They turned their back on the Lord. Now, we're told that they did repent, and God did forgive their sins. That entire generation didn't go to hell. God forgave their sins. They were still his people. But yet, because they crossed the point of no return, they couldn't be restored back to the original promise that God gave them. Rather, it was physical judgment. They would die in the wilderness. And so they reached that point of no return. And we see that different times throughout the Old Testament. Even in the book of Jeremiah, they received the same thing. God was still saving folks, but physical judgment will still come because of the sin of the nation of Israel. This even happened in individuals' lives. Look at Moses and Aaron. Obviously, they both went to heaven, right? But they both, because of a sin that they committed in the wilderness, God said, okay, because of that, you, ha you also have to die in the wilderness. Moses struck the rock, and God said, okay, you rendered your testimony here ineffective. And because of that, you're going to die in the wilderness. Aaron, the same thing. Nadab and Abihu, they went to heaven, but they committed a sin which they could not repent from. They were struck dead by God. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they were still believers, but because of their hypocrisy, they could not be restored again. They were judged by God with physical death. So these folks did not lose their salvation, but they committed a sin in which they could not be restored from. They experienced physical death. The same would be true of these believers. This was the consequences that they would face. If they would choose to associate themselves with that Jewish generation that committed the unpardonable sin and put Jesus to death, then they would experience the same physical judgment that Jesus predicted would come on them. And we know it did come on them in 70 AD. It also, or it could refer to, you know, the different judgments as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which Paul said, some are sick and some are falling asleep among you because 
they were misusing the Lord's table. And so apparently they were committing a sin that was without repentance. First John chapter five talked about a sin unto death. And so that is apparently is a sin that had no repentance. And so, you know, we're not told exactly what it is here, but we know that it's, we have some different insight on, on what he could be talking about. So this is heavy stuff, right? How does this apply to you and I today? Well, it would appear from 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 John 5 and Acts 5 that there are times that a believer can sin and cross a point of no return in which they render their witness so ineffective that God actually chooses to take that person home. How does that affect you and I tonight? Well, I like what the writer goes on to say in verse 9. He gives something heavy here, and then he says, hey, guys, I'm going to encourage you now, verse 9. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation through which, though, though we speak in this manner. He says, guys, we're speaking about some heavy stuff here, but hey, you know what? I'm confident that you guys aren't going to commit this, this sin here. I'm confident that you guys are going to press forward, and you guys are going to experience those blessings that come with your salvation. And so rather than being worried about committing a sin, right, that, that has no repentance, rather we're to press forward into those good things that the Lord has for us in our salvation. And so this passage isn't to make us afraid or, or worried, but rather it's to give us a healthy understanding of the importance of pressing forward in our Christian walk to maturity. And that's really what he began in verse 11. He says, hey guys, Let's talk about maturity here. Let's talk about the importance of doing so. And if you remain immature, if you continue to digress, hey, here's some consequences that can come. I just wanna warn you. But I'm more confident that you guys will continue to press forward. You guys are gonna heed what I'm saying to you and you're gonna press forward in your Christian walk. God the Father has given us a great salvation. He's given us good gifts. We need to remember those things when the enemy comes and tempts us to turn back, to turn away. Rather than think about those things in the past, we're to press forward to those good things that the Lord has for us. He's done some amazing things for us already in the past, but he wants to do some even better things for us in the future. Amen?